Welcome to the FARBcast, Water Island Capital's podcast series where we hope to provide our investors with concise and timely insights into the world of event-driven investing. I'm your host, Lindsay Fitzpatrick, and today I'll be speaking with John Arrigo, the founder and CIO of Water Island Capital, to get his views on the environment for merger arbitrage. Hi, John. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. So, John, as we get started here, in our prior communications with investors, we've often discussed the primary drivers of merger arbitrage returns. Can you share with us a little bit about what those drivers look like? Sure. When we speak about returns in the strategy, they're really driven by a number of factors. And first, let me step back and define what we mean by spread, which is our profit opportunity in the strategy. The spread is the difference between where the shares of the target company trade today and the consideration that we expect to receive at the time of the transaction's closing. So the size of that spread or the profit opportunity is influenced principally by the totality of the risks that are associated with a path towards a successful close of that transaction. So then define for me what those risks would look like or what those risks are. The risks take many forms and they're varied from deal to deal. The greater or more numerous the risks, the less transparent those risks, the greater the spread or the profit opportunity. So think about it from the perspective of the merger arbitrageur. The question becomes one of, how much do our shareholders need to be compensated for the risks that they are underwriting in a particular transaction? So some of those risks that we assess are measurable and quantifiable, and in many times based on precedent transactions and, of course, our firm's long history in analyzing and assessing deals, while other risks can be much harder to quantify and assess. Maybe you can go a little bit deeper for us then in terms of known or unknown risks and how that would impact the profit opportunities that are available in the merger arbitrage strategy. When we talk about the assessment of known or precedent risks, we're talking about approval processes such as those coming from shareholders or regulators. Each jurisdiction in which we invest has its own set of rules and standards by which a merger transaction can proceed. How about the unknown risks? Right. Well, there are many and varied as well. Some of those risks that we can't easily quantify or assess might have to do with political changes, i.e. trade disputes or interference by governments in unprecedented or disruptive ways. Other unknown risks might include legislative changes proposed or implemented during a transaction's duration that might make a particular transaction untenable. An example might be when the U.S. a few years ago changed the laws around offshore domiciling by companies in order to enjoy lower tax rates, and the changes reversed many of the benefits of that, which made some of those mergers that had been inked on that basis really untenable in terms of being able to close. Other issues or other types of risks that we assess and look at could be adverse legal outcomes related to pending or new lawsuits, or even events that affect the fundamentals of either the target or the acquirer. And those might be related to disruptions in their businesses, issues that come about due to natural disasters such as hurricanes or fires, product liability suits, all of those risks that maybe didn't exist at the time that the merger agreement was initially signed or filed. So outside of these factors that are so-called deal-specific, what else can have an impact on merger arbitrage returns? Well, that's a good question, too. You know, know, we talk a lot about the individual risks associated with all of the varied deals in our portfolio across the globe, and we 
try to stay focused on those aggregate risks across the portfolio. But some of the other influences of merger arbitrans are really out of our control and external in nature. And I would describe those in three major buckets or categories. One would be interest rates, two would be market volatility, and three is the overall level of deal flow. All right. Well, why don't you lead us into interest rates then? How, how are they impacted? Well, when we think about the impact or the influence of interest rates in terms of the strategy's returns, it's really in the context of the time value of money. So when we're investing in a merger situation, we're moving capital out of risk-free assets such as money markets or treasury bills, and we're moving that capital into a transaction. So at a minimum, we need to earn that time value of money. We need to exceed what we would earn in a riskless asset. So in a rising rate environment or a low rate environment, on the margin, that can be an influence or an impact to overall merger arbitrage returns. All right. Well, let's stay on that for a second then. Over the past few months, we've seen the Federal Reserve move toward lower interest rates. Now, how are these lower interest rates impacting the strategy? Well, sure. As I said earlier, overall, the impact is limited. The level of rates or the time value of money, of course, is going to influence merger arbitrage returns, but the bulk of returns in the strategy are driven by those discrete risks associated with each individual transaction. And those risks and how we're compensated for them have been pretty consistent throughout the economic cycle. Now, one of the things that we talked about a little bit earlier was you mentioned volatility. Can you talk about how volatility might work in our favor? Well, sure. I think that when we look back over our experience in implementing or employing the merger arb strategy through both buoyant and more difficult markets, it's really the opportunity that we have as arbitrageurs to put capital to work during periods of stress or in a risk-off environment where we can employ capital at what can be exceptional rates of return. And that's really being driven by the fact that your plain vanilla investors, the institutional and retail community, are looking to de-risk and their concern about overall spread levels is really not factoring in their decision to make a sale. The ARB community, while we're small overall as a percent of overall trading volumes, we step in to provide liquidity to those investors that are looking to sell out of their positions following the announcement of a merger transaction. The volatility spikes that we see in the marketplace really give us a more opportunistic entry point, i.e. that means our ability to put spreads on or to extract profit opportunities from a merger situation is clearly going to benefit when we have investors that are looking to unload their portfolios during times of stress in the marketplace. So the third prong that we touched on earlier was deal flow. You've talked about interest rates, then volatility. Let's talk deal flow now. Why is this an important factor? Well, deal flow is always an important factor. And of course, deal flow has been buoyant for the last few years. Coming out of the financial crisis, we've seen an increase in deal flow uh, across the globe. But you know, it's important to note that no matter where we are in the economic cycle, in what part of the world we're investing, whether we're coming out of a recession, whether we're in a buoyant economic environment, there are always mergers taking place either out of necessity or out of strategic opportunity. When you think about what impacts deal flow today, we're witnessing how difficult it is for companies to grow their top line. And one of the ways that most companies are looking to grow 
their businesses, increase their revenues, expand their geographic reach is through opportunistic acquisitions. So at the moment, deal flow is pretty robust. And that's across most of the sectors that we invest in. We're seeing improvements in Europe and improvements in Asia in terms of the deal flow as well. There's one other point I'll make. When we think about the influence of private equity on deal flow, that can also be significant at times. We're looking at cash available to private equity at record levels. And that cash will go to work, sometimes in private transactions, but many times involving targets that are publicly traded companies. That could be another opportunity for us as well. Do you have expectations that this deal flow looking ahead is going to continue in the same trend that you've just described? Well, we're pretty optimistic given the pipeline that we see, given our discussions with the investment banking community as well as corporate executives, that growth through acquisition is a key part of many of these companies' growth plans. Our view is that as different sectors of the economy go through their own ups and downs, there'll be opportunities within many of those sectors, again, out of necessity in some cases, companies need to merge or diversify, and many times out of strategic opportunity, new technologies and new markets that companies are looking to take advantage of. I think that as investors, the deals that hit the headlines that we're familiar with tend to be the large cap or the mega cap deals. I'm talking AT&T, Time Warner, T-Mobile, Sprint. But it sounds like you seek opportunities that are far broader than just those mega cap deals, correct? Yeah, that's right. I think when we think about the mega cap deals, they're interesting to read about, but they attract and garner a lot of attention from the regulators. In a heightened political environment, some of those deals can become troublesome in terms of the length of time it can take to close those deals or the regulatory approval processes can be disrupted. But our opportunity is global, and most of the transactions in which we invest don't make the headlines, and most investors don't read about them. And they're much smaller than those mega cap 25 billion plus transactions that do make the headlines. And I think that that tends to be our sweet spot. We invest across the market cap. It's important that we can diversify our portfolios, not only in terms of market cap, but from a jurisdictional basis. We have a team in Europe uh, that focuses on cross-border transactions in Europe, Asia, and the U.S. And, And of course, a diversified portfolio by sector, by market cap, by jurisdiction is really important in terms of achieving our goals in the strategy. Shifting a bit, your team constantly speaks to its investors about capital preservation. How in the context of investing in numerous merger transactions across the globe are you able to deliver capital preservation? Well, when we talk about the merger ARB strategy, we define it in its purest sense. The strategy is designed to preserve capital. That's a primary objective. But we're also focused on delivering positive returns throughout the economic cycle. The way we employ that strategy allows us to meet that mandate or achieve that goal. And what I mean by that is it's really about discipline. It's about focusing on definitive announced transactions. We don't speculate and that's important. We have very little market bias in the portfolio, meaning our returns are not correlated to equity market or credit market returns. When we think about the merger arm universe, over 90% of announced transactions end up closing successfully. But our job is to do even better than that. We're looking to invest in a subset of that universe 
with much higher odds of a successful close, a, a much better batting average is another way to describe it, while still delivering an acceptable risk-adjusted return to our investors. So when we talk about implementing the strategy, the merger ARB strategy, in its purest sense, it's about delivering returns with a focus on capital preservation. It's bringing a fundamental overlay or analysis to each of the deals in which we invest so that we understand what our downsides look like if a deal does not close. It's about diversifying the portfolio across those different factors I talked about earlier, jurisdiction, market cap, sector, and really utilizing the right or what we think are the best or most appropriate hedging methodologies so that we can ensure that if a deal doesn't close within our portfolios, it will not have a material impact in terms of NAV drawdown. So discipline means staying true to our focus on those tenants I've laid out above. And I think it means not deviating from that strategy because of where the markets happen to be at any one particular time. John, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your perspective and really letting us better understand the discipline that you and your team have followed in executing on the merger ARB strategy. I also want to thank our investors for listening today. On our next episode, we will discuss how trade wars impact deal flow and spreads and how we manage geopolitical risks within our portfolios. Thanks again for joining us. Tune in again soon.